part of our uh, services tonight and our summer series for our program in here and our uh, children's program, uh, SOS, Stories of Scriptures, in the other part of the building. And if you're visiting with us, we want you to know how glad we are to have you with us. We consider it a blessing for you to be here with us, and we invite you back at any opportunity. We're very glad to have uh, Jacob Hawk with us tonight. He serves as the preaching minister for the Faith Village Church of Christ, and uh, he holds a bachelor and master's degree in Bible from Harding University there in Searcy, Arkansas. Jacob is married to his wife, Natalie. They have three sons, Hayden, Hudson, and Hewitt. He's the author of four different books, uh, some great ones. Uh, you can look him up and, and find those. And uh, he has also co-authored uh, uh, with Chris, uh, the two that Chris did on preaching, and uh, did some chapters for those books, which were excellent as well. Uh, Jacob has been with us before and is a strong gospel preacher, and uh, we're so glad to have you with us. Thank you. I do consider it a great honor to be back with you here at Oldham Lane. I think this is my fifth or sixth summer here. Um, Chris usually calls me around September, October and says, can you come? And I always look forward to that phone call because I always enjoy being with you. I'm, I've been here enough now that I recognize your face. I don't have a clue what your name is, though. Um, Preachers learn how to fake that the more that they preach, and um, if you thought I was faking it tonight, I was. I don't know what your name is, but I am glad that you're here, and I'm honored to be here, and I'm honored to call you brothers and sisters in Christ. I congratulate you on this building project that you have next door. I know that brings a lot of excitement. Uh, when I was preaching in Kerrville a few years ago, we built an education wing, and I have uh, one of my former elders from the Riverside congregation, Gene Bossy and his wife Linda, their grandson Ashton, they're here tonight. And so I know that's something you're very excited about, and I pray God's richest blessings on you and that new addition uh, to the church family here. So it's good to see you again, and I'm looking forward to uh, what we're going to talk about tonight. And we'll talk about that topic in just a moment. But I want to begin by telling you a story. It's a story about a young man who went to a local bank to get a loan because he really needed some money for his business. And so he went and he met with the local banker to see if he could get the money, but the banker had a reputation of being a real hard-nosed, a stickler, not real easy to work with. He didn't give money out very much. So the young man was very nervous about this meeting with the banker. But when he walked into the banker's office, the banker said, I've got some good news for you. You've caught me on a good day. I'm in a great mood. I just got a brand new glass eye. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you to tell me which one of my eyes is my new glass eye. If you guess it right, you get the money. If you don't, no money. You understand? You guess which one's a glass eye. You get it right, you get the money. You're wrong, no money. So which one of my eyes is the glass eye? The man said, well, sir, I'd uh, really rather not answer that question. That's kind of an awkward question. Is there any other way we could do this? Banker said, no. That's the rules. You got to guess which one of my eyes is the glass eye. 
Which one is it? The guy tried again. He said, sir, is there any other way? Can I fill out another form? Can we do something about my history? Do I really have to guess which one of your eyes is the glass eye? He said, up to you. If you want the money, you'll give it a try. It's the only way I'm going to give you the money. So the young man took a deep breath, and he looked at the banker's eyes. He looked at his left eye, looked at his right eye, looked back at his left, looked back at his right. Finally, he said, your right eye is the glass eye. The banker was impressed. He said, that's right. I'm going to give you the money, but if you don't mind me asking, how did you know that my right eye was the glass eye? The man said, well, I looked into both of your eyes a few times, and in your right eye, the glass eye, I saw just an ounce of compassion. Compassion changes things. Compassion not only makes people feel loved, but it makes them feel very important. And our Savior and our brother, Jesus Christ, was a man and a God who understood compassion. In fact, one of his deepest cries of compassion echoed from the cross. Roughly four hours into that agonizing six-hour process, Jesus looked down from the cross where he was held on the beams with nails. And he looked down and he saw two people that were very dear to him. He saw his mother Mary and the Apostle John. And when he saw them standing there, Jesus took a deep breath, which was becoming harder and harder for him to do, and Jesus gave some final instructions. Jesus looked at Mary, his mother, and said, Dear woman, here is your son, pointing at John. And then he looked at John and he said, Here is your mother, pointing at Mary. A dying man makes preparations for the living. It's usually the other way around. But it's a moment frozen in time, a moment that we remember with great fondness and respect in our hearts, but there's a reason that moment is so important, and that reason is because of this one word that we're talking about tonight. Compassion. Compassion. And I think if we take a deeper look at these words in John chapter 19, it's eye-opening for us to see and to understand why it happened the way that it did. So I ask you to open your Bibles tonight to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. That's where we find this statement of Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I study the Bible, I'm someone that always asks questions. In fact, I think the more questions we ask, the more that we learn. And so when I look at this beautiful statement from our Savior on the cross for his mother and for his friend John, I have some questions. And my first question is, why Mary? 
He's hanging there on the cross. He's about to die. He's in tremendous pain, but he takes a moment to take care of his mother. Why Mary? Because John tells us there were other women standing at the foot of the cross besides his mother Mary. Three other women, three followers of Jesus, loyal in their life, who also loved him. There was Mary's sister, or Jesus' aunt. There was Mary, the wife of Clopas. We really don't know much about her. And there's Mary Magdalene. We know more about Mary Magdalene. In fact, we may know more about Mary Magdalene than we do Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because on one occasion, Jesus casted seven demons out of Mary Magdalene's troubled body. And it's obvious that occasion changed Mary Magdalene's life. She not only shows up here at the cross to watch Jesus die, she shows up at the tomb on resurrection morning. So why Mary? There's three other women standing there. Well, some people make an interesting observation about Jesus' clothing that's mentioned in verse 24. It was Jewish custom, Jewish tradition, that the mother of the house would be the seamstress for the family. She would make clothes not only for her young children, but for her grown adult children as well. And in verse 24, we read that the Roman soldiers, they begin to cast lots for Jesus' clothing. They gamble for his clothing. So some people speculate, is it possible that Jesus is hanging there on the cross? He looks down, he sees his clothes being gambled for and spat upon, and he remembers who made those clothes. That it was Mary, his mother, the seamstress for the family, who did that, and that triggered in his mind everything that Mary had done for him his entire life. Is that possible? Sure. But I think the better reason is the obvious reason. Why Mary? She's his mom. She's his mother. That is a role that no one can replace or no one can fill except your mom. I'm sure that Mary loved Jesus when he was a young child, just like all mothers love their children, holding him when he would cry, hugging him when he would fall and skin his knees, encouraging him when he was discouraged. Mary brought him into the world, and now she's about to watch him leave it. I'm sure there's some of you in here tonight who have buried a child. I've not been there. And I can't even begin to fathom the pain that you experienced in burying a child. But can you imagine not only having the pain of watching your child die, but watching your child die through torture and through execution? This is what Mary is enduring in this moment. And Jesus is nailed to the cross, and he can no longer reach out and touch Mary with his physical hands, but he can touch her with his words. And so he says, dear woman, here is your son. John's going to take care of you when I'm gone. You know, that one's pretty easy to understand why Jesus chooses Mary. But that second one, I really have a harder time grasping. Why John? Doesn't Jesus have at least ten other apostles by this point since Judas has hung himself? 
Why not Thomas? Why not Bartholomew? Why not Matthew? Why not Peter? Why John? Well, John and Jesus, they shared a special relationship. John is part of the inner circle with Jesus, with Peter and James. It's John in the upper room at the Last Supper that leans into the chest of Jesus and asks Jesus who's going to betray him. It's John who writes a gospel account and never once refers to himself by name, but by the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Don't you know the other apostles love that one? Wait. You're the disciple whom Jesus loved. What about us? He loves us too, John. Why don't you get a different nickname? A different signature? But Jesus did love John. But still, why John? What about Joseph? Mary's husband, Jesus' earthly father, Did he not have a responsibility to care for Mary? Most speculate, and I believe they do so correctly, that by this time, Joseph has died. But doesn't Jesus also have some brothers? We know from the New Testament he has at least five brothers and two sisters. What about those other five boys? Are they not supposed to take care of their grieving mother? Sure they are, but at this point they don't believe in Jesus. They'll come around when the church begins after the day of Pentecost, but not now. And Jesus isn't about to leave the care of his mother into the hands of unbelievers. You see, John had a commitment to Jesus that the rest of his family did not have. And so Jesus, in a final moment of authority before he breathes his last, he says, John, you take care of mom. And I love the response to Jesus' instructions, both on John's part and Mary's part. We read in verse 27, from that time on, from that time on, right after this, this disciple took her into his home. Mary didn't argue with it. John didn't argue with it. They both followed their instructions. And when it says that he took her into his home, this is more than just putting a roof over her head. This is more than just keeping some college kids while they're traveling through for spring break or summer. John is agreeing to take care of Mary physically, emotionally, spiritually, and most of all, financially. John is going to inherit any debt that Mary brings with her, and we know from studying history that Mary was very, very poor. But John does it. And it's a big change for the both of them. Mary's from the dirty town of Nazareth. And if she's going to move in with John, she's at least going to Judea, possibly and more than likely, the city of Jerusalem. She's leaving the little town for the big city. And John, he's taking into his home another heart to love, another mouth to feed, but they both did it because Jesus 
asked them to do it. And the reason Jesus asked them to do it gets back to that one word, compassion. You see, this story here is really not a story about Mary. And this story really is not about John. This story is about Jesus and His tremendous compassion even in death. I think that word compassion is a word that we often misunderstand, or at least we don't understand it fully. I want to do a little bit of an experiment here. On the back of the pew in front of you, I'm going to sound like I'm making announcements. On the back of the pew in front of you, you should find an attendance card. Do you all have those here? Okay. And some pencils that you can fill out one of those cards. Pull out one of those cards, please. And I want you to define for me in one or two words... The word compassion. The word compassion. I'm going to give you about 10 seconds. How would you define the word compassion? Some of you right now may be writing down words like kind, empathetic, sympathetic. Anybody write down sympathetic? Maybe patient. I mean, that's a hard word. Compassion. But did you know what the word literally means in the biblical sense? The word compassion means to see a need. But the second part's more important. You don't just see a need. You do something to help. If you are a compassionate person, you don't just acknowledge a problem when the problem exists. You do something to fix the problem. And Jesus was certainly compassionate. Look at these two passages here, Mark chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. This is the day when Jesus feeds 4,000 people. Jesus said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me for three days, and they have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way. So what does Jesus do here? Does Jesus say, wow, y'all are hungry. Hope you find something to eat on your way home. No, Jesus, he sees a need, and he does something to help. He feeds all 4,000 of them, even though he's tired and busy and has things to get done, he stops what he's doing to fix the problem. Or in Matthew chapter 9, large crowds of people are coming to Jesus to be healed. And Matthew tells us that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. So what does Jesus do? Does he let them stay in their sickness and in their disease? No. He performs the miracle. He heals them. They leave completely cured. But more importantly, he says, these people are like sheep without a shepherd, so what will I do? 
I will become the good shepherd, John chapter 10. They don't have a leader, I'll be their leader. They don't have a guide, I'll be their guide. Why? Because I'm compassionate. I don't just see a need, but I do something to help. And so when we return to the crucifixion scene in John chapter 19, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he sees his mom, he sees his friend John, we expect nothing less. Compassion still writes the script. Jesus sees a need. He does something to help. He knows that Mary is very poor. She doesn't have any financial means. John has a little bit of financial ability. So he says, John, take care of mom. And he knows that John's going to be this great leader and teacher in the church, and so he's going to face a lot of tribulations and trials. And so Jesus knows that when the road gets steep and life gets tough, Mary will be there for John. And Mary will encourage John. And Mary will say, don't give up, John. Because you're doing this for my son. Jesus saw a need. And he did something to help. And when we look at compassion in that way, I hope it makes you feel and believe that we as a church, we as the bride of Christ, we have to step up our game when it comes to compassion. Too many times in the church, we see a need. But we don't do anything to help. That's not compassionate. That's just seeing a need. Maybe you have a friend in this congregation that you know is really going through a hard time. They look depressed. They're not happy. It's nice for you to say, I'm praying for you, but do more than pray for them. Don't just say that you hope things get better. Make things better. Don't just pray for a solution. Be the solution for your friend. Have compassion for them. A few years ago, well, several years ago now, time's going by quickly, when I was preaching for my first job down in Llano, Texas, we went out to visit a woman, me and the elders, who had not been at church for about six weeks, and so... We were making one of those visits to make sure everything was okay. And we showed up at her house, and on the front door was an eviction notice. And in the middle of the night, she was sitting in the house with all of the lights turned off because she could not afford to pay the electricity. I was 21, right out of college. And I watched one of my elders, and I praise God for him because it taught me a lesson I'll never forget. He said, you know, we're here while we were waiting for her to come to the door, maneuvering herself through the dark. He said, we're here to check up on her spiritually, and we still need to do that. But he said, I think we know where we can start helping her right away. She doesn't have any money. She's about to lose her home. 
she doesn't have any electricity. So before we start talking about why she hasn't been at church, why don't we fix this problem first? I'll never forget that. Now, I've been preaching long enough to know that people from the community come by all the time and they want to take advantage of the Lord's church. I get that. And the larger church you have, the more it happens. Because they think more people, more resources. I get that. And we need to be good stewards. I get that. But I just wonder how often we truly show compassion when someone comes in seeking our help and we say, we'll pray for you. Prayer is great and prayer always helps. But in that moment, they need more than a prayer. And if you've ever been in that position where you don't know how you're going to pay for your mortgage or you don't know how you're going to pay for the car payment or you don't know how you're going to pay for your groceries, that's an embarrassing position to be in and people don't walk around publicizing that. And when they're in that position, as nice as it is for us to offer them a warm meal or to say we're thinking about them, what we really need to do is say, what can we do right now to help you? How can we help you gain some footing and a stronger foundation? And you know, marriage is even the same way. It's one thing to acknowledge that things aren't right in your marriage and that there's a problem, but acknowledging the problem is really only half the battle. Because the other part to the battle, which is the harder part, is sitting down with your spouse, with your husband, or with your wife in compassion and saying, tell me specifically, explain to me directly how I can be a better husband, how I can be a better wife. What can I do to make you feel more loved? What can I do to make you feel more respected? What can I do to honor you the way that God calls me? To honor you. I don't want to just see a need. I want to do my part. To help. I want to be compassionate. Because I want to be like Jesus. You see God. Does not call us. To be problem makers. And God does not call us to be problem finders. God calls us to be problem solvers. Because when we're problem solvers, that's when we're really like Jesus. Because when we're problem solvers, that's when we have compassion. I read a story on the internet this week that I thought was fairly humorous because it describes the stage of life that we're passing through right now. And my wife is at home with our three boys. I don't know how she does it. They're all under the age of six. But I read a story on the internet about this elderly woman who lives in a fairly good-sized town, but she goes to a small grocery store three days a week. Now, again, she lives in a good-sized town. She's not off in the boondocks. They have Walmart, they have Target, they have other food stores, but she chooses to go to the small grocery store three days a week. 
and she slowly drives her car to the grocery store. She slowly gets out of the car. She makes her way into the store. She walks the aisles, which seem like they last for an eternity. She waits in line. She checks out her groceries. And then to the point of exhaustion, she walks out to her car with this young worker from the grocery store walking with her and sharing a conversation. And one day, her adult children pulled her aside and they said, Mom, in this great world of modern technology, Walmart has started this new thing called online delivery. Do you all have that here? Isn't that great? My wife loves that. She can sit at home and do her grocery shopping from the kitchen table on the iPhone or the iPad or the computer. You put it in, you show up, they load the car. They said, Mom, why don't you try this? You don't even have to get out of the car. You don't have to stand in line. You don't have to walk down the aisles. You just pull in, and they load all the groceries for you. Why don't you give it a try? She said, not a chance. I wouldn't even think about doing something like that. They said, why in the world not? Here's her response. Those online orders won't walk me out to my car and ask me about my arthritis. That's why. Because I lose the personal touch. She said that little act of compassion, as small as it might be, that is what keeps me coming back to this store. And when I read that story, I thought about the Lord's church. And I thought to myself, it's the little acts of compassion that keep people coming back to this place. You can have the best preaching in the world. And here at Oldham Lane, you have the second best. You can tell Chris I said that. You can have the best singing. You can have the best eldership, and you have a great one. You can have the best facility. You can have the best program. You can have the best people. You can have the best smiles. But nothing and absolutely nothing compares to compassion. Because as the church, when we see a need, and when we do something to help, that changes lives. And so I thought about the great parable of Jesus, about the Good Samaritan, probably his most famous parable. You know what, how it goes. An expert in the law walks up to Jesus, Chest puffed out, says, tell me, teacher, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, I have a story about that. A man was traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem on the way. He was beaten and robbed and thrown into the ditch to die. Three men walked by, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. The priest walks by first, doesn't stop. He's probably on his way to another lectureship with the other preachers. A Levite comes by, same thing, probably on his way to a committee meeting at church. 
But then these Samaritans, the dirty breed for the Israelite people, he comes walking by. And not only does he see a need, not only does he stop, but he does something to help. He bandages the man's wounds. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him into the city. He pays for the man to have a night's rest. And then he helps him nurse back to health. Jesus looked at that expert in the law and said, You tell me, who was the man's neighbor? The expert said, Well, I guess it was the one who had mercy. I guess it was the one who had compassion. I guess it was the one who saw a need and did something to help. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Now go and do likewise. And tonight, through the message of time, and the inspiration of Scripture, and the beat of God's heart, Jesus looks at you, and Jesus looks at me, and Jesus says the same thing. Go. And do likewise. Maybe tonight you need the compassionate heart of God. Maybe you need to be forgiven of your sins. Maybe you need to obey the gospel through baptism. Maybe you need to request the prayers of this church and start over and be more compassionate. We hope that you'll make that choice right now as we sing and as we sing.